We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Our scripture reading is in Second Chronicles 33 this evening. If you would join me by turning your Bibles there, Second Chronicles 33, please. It says this in Scripture, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals, made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall thy name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Wow. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That is, he sacrificed his children. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses." So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon, in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, that is, through the means of the priests, of course, not directly, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. I just have to put a footnote there in my mind, sort of. They sort of sacrificed to the Lord their God. They were thinking that way, but wrongly, because they were doing it according to their own hearts, not the way that God had prescribed. Verse 18, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. 
also his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosei. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, for Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself, but Ammon trespassed more and more. Then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. Then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Wow. Okay, there we have it. Well, in the remaining time we have here this evening, I have two, th- two things for you. First is uh, an article that I wrote um, just yesterday. Um, actually, I had written the substance of it some weeks and weeks ago, and I've just kind of cleaned it up and formalized it a little bit. I thought I'd share it with you. It has to do with Revelation 10.6. Why don't I have you turn there, Revelation 10.6. And the question was posed to me, has been actually posed to me over uh, a few times over the years. In fact, I wrote on the subject roughly like this in September of 2016, so put uh, six years back on the time scale, but uh, most recently just uh, yesterday. In Revelation 10.6, there's a scripture that says, and... Well, in verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be, what does your version have there? There should be, in the King James it says, time no more. And in my translation it has, there should be delay no longer. So I want to share with you the results of a little bit of thought on this process. Here's the thing. People have suggested that when we go to heaven, the reality that is there is totally different than what it is here. Uh, Three-dimensionality comes into question. There is no more time or passage of time, uh, no more physicality, uh, you know, physical body, material things very uh, ethereal view of what uh, heaven is uh, like. And so some have speculated um, on this basis that the Bible is saying there will be no more time. Well, there are a number of problems with that view, and I want to go over those. Uh, but, you know, say this too, when there are questions like this, where do we go? We go to Scripture. We look in Scripture, we look at all the data that we can find in Scripture about the question, and truly there are some questions that the data is slim on and we can't say for sure. We don't know, or God hasn't revealed it. Um, you know, if you try to talk about the, what the seven thunders uttered to John and figure that out, well, you're going to have a hard time convincing me because God told John not to write those things and what he heard. Um, for one thing, if you just look at the context, if the angel's standing there and saying there will be no more time, well, in what does the rest of the tribulation occur? Chapter 10, 11, 12, 13, all the way down through 19. Is there no time there? 
Well, of course there is time there, but I haven't even addressed that particular issue in my article. I just uh, I, I ran into this a few weeks ago when uh, Answers in Genesis posted an old article. They kind of refreshed, uh, not really refreshed the article, but re reissued it, I guess I'll say it that way, and put it out on their Twitter feed, and I saw it somehow, and um, this article supports uh, the idea that physical time, or time as we know it, ends, according to Revelation 10.6, but I say in my little reply here, this interpretation is highly suspect. First of all, in Revelation 10.6, time, if it's translated time, should be really delay. And that's what the New King James has said. There shall be delay no longer. And if you look up the word here, it's the word, common word. Our Greek class just learned it, actually, chronos, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? Chronology, chronometer. It's the word for time. But the third definition in the standard Greek lexicon, which we abbreviate BDAG, BDAG people call it, the full title is what? Uh... I can't think of it just now. It's a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature by Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. That's a mouthful, so we just call it BDAG. But that's the standard Greek dictionary. If you look through there, you look at the definitions they offer, one, two, and the third one is where they place this verse, and they say there that it means delay, some kind of delay between something happening and something else happening. In this case, there will be no more delay, so the delay will cease. It refers to the fact that there will be no more delay until the mystery of God is finished. Uh, If you look in 7 and so on, the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. And so the context tells us what it means. The end times will now fully unfold without any further delay. There will be no more delay. God is done waiting. Yes, he has been patient, long-suffering, waiting for many to come to repentance. In fact, the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, isn't it? If God didn't wait until whatever day you were saved, but he came before then, then you wouldn't have been saved, right? Wouldn't that be a terrible thought to ponder? Indeed. So the end times will now come. God's patience has has, uh, run its course. He's going to do what he has promised to do now going forward. Secondly, in the context of the eternal state, if you look forward uh, to Revelation 22, and I've, I've often confounded people using this verse. In Revelation 22, Verse 1, it says, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. This is clearly in an eternal context, in eternity, describing heaven, the new Jerusalem, and all of that, Revelation 21 and 22. And then it says in verse 2 of chapter 22, In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree... Each, each tree is what the New King James supplies, but each yielding its fruit. How often? Every month. Well, there's a, a reference to time passing in the eternal state every month. Now, that may seem strange to somebody who has been kind of brought up on the idea that once we go to heaven, time stops. But that's what the text says. So we just leave the text 
alone. Uh, even uh, evidently the passage of time must occur for this fruit to happen on a monthly basis. Therefore, time seems to continue in the eternal state. On the explicit testimony of Scripture, we make that claim. Someone might object, however, that in eternity, the Bible says, hey, there's no need for the sun nor the moon. And where do our months come from? Well, sort of from the lunar cycle, but yeah, that's a pretty weak argument because uh, the lunar cycle is about, what, 28 and change days? Is there some astronomer astronomer here? Uh, 28 point some days. Well, none of our months except February are 28 days long, so really the moon isn't setting our months in any case, but prophetic months were 30 days uh, as as uh, we understand it. But anyway, um, that's not really that significant of a point. Months can be marked without the moon, and it's certainly the case here that the Scripture is telling us there's some period of time called a month. Now, so again, time should be translated delay. Revelation 22 says there are months. Thirdly, and more philosophically, I have my severe doubts that finite creatures can exist in a timeless environment. Finite creatures cannot exist in a completely timeless environment. For example, for a finite creature anywhere at any time in heaven or anywhere else to move from point A to point B is going to take some kind of time. For, for him or her to chew on the fruit of this tree is going to take some time. Um, that's just the nature of being finite, it seems. Now, it doesn't mean that we'll have all the same limitations that we have today, but it, it seems that is sound, at least how I see it. What transpires as we do things in heaven, as we serve God, is the passage of time. Being time-bound is a feature of finite creatures, which distinguishes them from the infinite. And the infinite is the only infinite, which is God. So there's a hard line between creature and creator that we have to respect. Number four, fourth reason, the passage of time is not a negative thing. Certainly not a negative feature in the heavenly state. You know, today we sen- some of us sense the passage of time as a negative feature, like it goes too fast, or we get too old too soon, uh, or we don't have enough time in the day to get the things done that we feel like we should want to get done. But time will not have any kind of bad feature to it in the eternal state. Uh, time existed by the way, during the opening days of the creation week, didn't it? Adam and Eve, six days, they lived in the garden for some amount of time before sin entered the world and time was no problem for them. God came to them and uh, fellowshiped with them and somehow in space and time, the passage of time did no harm to Adam and Eve in that garden of Eden and so there seems to be no reason that it could not exist in the heavenly state as well. Um, there are some parallels to this uh, idea of time not being a negative feature. Humans existed in physical bodies in the pre-fall state, and they will exist in physical bodies in the post-resurrection in the heavenly state. You know, is there something wrong with living in a in a human body? Um, well, God created Adam and Eve, and He said everything was very good. 
during the early days of the creation, after the creation, so no problem. Uh, there are three-dimensional objects, you know, existing today. There's no reason to suppose that the same sort of thing will not exist in the future. Uh, how do we know that? Well, Jesus was resurrected into a physical body that's roughly like ours, more glorified, obviously, but certainly similar. That body of the Lord exists in heaven today. It's coming back in the very same way the Lord, uh, the angels rather, said to the disciples, hey, listen, uh, the same Jesus that you saw going away is coming back again. So there's evidence that a physical body is gone, gone and then coming back. There's a new Jerusalem. That new Jerusalem has uh, foundations. It has gates. It has um, a river. It has walls. It has a multi-fruited fruit tree. And so that sounds quite similar to the existence that we're accustomed to. I don't see any reason why then time would have to cease to exist in the future if all these other normal kinds of things exist. Um, And uh, we've already mentioned, finally, uh, when God created everything, including time, he said it was very good. Time is not a bad thing. It's uh, a thing that can be used for bad, can it? What of God's creation could not be used for ill? It'd be kind of hard to figure something. You know, everything that's created, every technology that's developed, you know, has a good use and it has a bad use. Uh, too much of it is bad. Uh, immoral content is bad or immoral use of that vehicle or t- uh, technology or time or uh, whatever. Communication method is, can be bad. If it's used immorally, it's certainly bad. Uh, just like our human bodies can be used for bad things. Our human brains can be used to think bad thoughts, and they can also be used to think good thoughts and our bodies to do good things. But just because time can be used for bad doesn't mean that it's necessary to eliminate it in the eternal state. So I'll leave that for uh, you to ponder, a little bit of uh, philosophical theology, I suppose you could say. But... Um, you know, if you demand that time uh, ceases to exist and we become somehow kind of timeless creatures, uh, infinite in some way, then I think you're getting a little, pushing us a little too close to the Creator, making us too too similar to God, um, and that's a that's not a good 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 for us here. So let's hold on to that thought. Meanwhile, we turn our attention to. That portion of scripture I mentioned that I would share with you this morning, which is in Matthew 26. So let's shift gears yet again and go to the 26th chapter of Matthew's gospel. And we're in verse 47. Right now we're beginning the segment of uh, the gospel in which the Lord Jesus is going to be found alone, all by himself, betrayed, He will be denied, uh, scourged, mocked, tried several times, condemned, crucified, killed, buried, and it's an awful scene. So the Bible says in verse 47, Jesus has been speaking to the disciples uh, the whole evening, Lord's Supper. He predicts uh, the betrayer, the denial of Peter, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the uh, Gat Shemanim, the oil press, and uh, he is pressed in great measure. Uh, and he goes to the disciples three times and says, hey, can't you stay awake with me? I'm here. I need your prayers. 
the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, you guys. You need to pray lest you enter into temptation. But they didn't, they couldn't do that. Their flesh was indeed weak. And so then, while he was still speaking, 47 says, Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. This is a crowd of people who came who were not uh, like an official band of Roman soldiers, it seems. From what Matthew's description is, this is kind of a ragtag bunch, you know, some with swords and some have come with sticks, you know, like we might say like baseball bats, uh, just a a mob kind of, um, somehow maybe deputized by the chief priests and elders to get him. And I, I say first in my notes, I was thinking about this, you know how much overkill it was for them to bring this huge crowd with their swords and the clubs as if Jesus were, you know, uh, there's an APB out on Jesus and he's, you know, armed and dangerous. Like he's a really dangerous man. Uh, I, I'm guessing that Judas probably thought that the 11 and perhaps others with them would fight back Was that a reasonable thought process? On a human level, you might think that. How much, you know, I mean, he he should have known that Jesus was not going to go for that kind of approach, you know, fighting back. But this idea that he he needed this huge group of people to subdue Jesus shows that Judas had a complete misunderstanding in his mind of who Jesus was and what he taught. Despite being with him for over three years and seeing his teachings firsthand and participating in the miracles, seeing them and, and, uh, and ministering alongside the other disciples, the fact is that he didn't get it. Now, in a way, that's not surprising because Judas did not believe in Christ, nor did he truly follow him. But It is disappointing that he could spend so much time with Jesus and not even understand the basics about him. Did Judas really think that Jesus was not going to turn the other cheek? He who taught this message in his Sermon on the Mount. Do you think that he was, did Judas think that he was not going to love his enemies? or the one who predicted he would be turned over to the authorities to be killed, that he would be violent and require some massive law enforcement presence to arrest him when he said this is what's going to happen? So Judas, uh, to me here, it gives evidence that he just didn't get it. He was clueless about who Jesus really was. And it's strange how somebody can be so close and yet so far. Like, they don't really get that person. They don't understand them. But that was his, his portion. That's what he was all about. He was blinded in his mind by his greed for money and for his, somehow his hatred of the philosophy and teachings of Jesus. Add on top of that, 
his greeting and identification. It's particularly galling that he would come up to Jesus and greet him with a kiss. Now, the manner of greeting was fairly normal for the time. I mean, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, we would have a handshake or some, you know, an, a, an, a, an embrace, an abrazo, you know, an arm to uh, wrap around somebody's shoulders and greet them. But this was galling. Uh, the awful thing was not that it was a kiss, because as I say, that was normal, but because it was used to identify Jesus to his arresters. And notice also what Judas says here. His betrayer given the sign, uh, the one I kiss, he's the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, what? Why didn't he say, Greetings, Lord? He couldn't bring himself to say, Lord. He did not want to call Jesus, Lord. He didn't think Jesus was Lord. He didn't, he didn't, wanna, he didn't wanna get himself too close to Romans 10, 9 and 10 that says if one confesses with his mouth Jesus as Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead that he would be saved. Of course, Judas will call Jesus Lord again at some point in the future. Every knee will bow as we've said many times with the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter two, but he couldn't bring himself to. So he, so he used the title rabbi, like the official kind of, you know, secular, uh, academic title. You know, um, it's, it's another part of this galling greeting that he, he gave uh, to the Lord. And I don't know if maybe, maybe you haven't experienced that, but um, I can imagine somebody who is very, a, a very um, respected person, a titled person, if there's some insolent young man that comes up to him and greets him by some off-the-wall title or some mocking title, you know. Rabbi, greetings. What do you mean, greetings? <laughs> what? That's just ridiculous. Jesus replied in verse number 50, and let me read a few verses more here. It says, Judas, or Jesus rather said to, to him, Judas, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not or sorry, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? I'll pause the reading there. <clears throat> so he says to him, friend, why have you come? Now, friend seems like a friendly enough word, if I can say it that way. But... Can you imagine that Jesus is using this to really call him his friend? I think, I think he's calling him friend because that distances, distances himself from Judas. Uh, puts some distance between Jesus and Judas. Um, like when you, if you, there's a difference between calling somebody a brother, a believer, and a friend. Like, Sometimes 
uh, a preacher might even say, you know, brothers, beloved brothers. But then in another context, if he's talking, he's not sure about the status of his audience. He might say, look, friends, he can't call them brothers because he doesn't know if they're brothers. Now, there are some other uses of the term friend in the Bible. If you go back to Matthew 20, verse 13, and they're also used in what I'll call an adversarial kind of context. In Matthew 20, 13, you have the parable of the workers in the, in the vineyard. And remember the ones who started earlier became incensed because they thought they were going to get more money when the later ones starting later in the day got a bunch their their same amount of money. And uh, so they said, hey, we've borne the burden and heat of the day. What about us? We should get more than we agreed to. But he answered one of them and said, this is the landowner, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Friend. A little bit of an adversarial conversation going on there. And then in Matthew 22, verse 12, the wedding feast is here, and they all, all these people made excuses and didn't want to go, but then finally they come to the wedding feast, and the king came in to see the guests, and he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment, in verse 12, the king said to his servants, I'm sorry, he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And the guy was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, bind him head and foot and get him out of here. So he said, friend, to him. Now this is a general form of address to someone whose name you do not know, but um, there's another use I just uh, noted here in my Notes Matthew 7, 23, a friend, but uh, someone you don't know. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you who practice lawlessness. And so the, the Lord is, it seems to me like calling him friend, and friend is not a good term here. Friend is an adversarial term. Friend is a term indicating that, you know, he doesn't know him. I mean, he knows him, but he doesn't know him in that saving way, of course. The word itself denotes an association, but not at the level of a true beloved friend. And uh, final reference here is in James chapter 2, verse 23. It says this, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. He was the friend of God. So that's a different kind of friend altogether. So immediately after this greeting, some from the crowd came and laid hands on Jesus. They arrested him. They bound him. They took him away. And this reminds us of verse 45, where it says, um, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So then the hands were laid upon him, and he was bound and arrested. Now back to this idea about Judas and bringing this huge crowd of people with him. Maybe he was concerned about Peter. You know, Peter was a pretty rough-and-tumble guy, and uh, it tells us that he uh, did take a swing at Malchus with his sword, John 18.10 tells us that it was Peter. This text in Matthew doesn't identify him. Uh, and apparently Malchus uh, tried to duck, but uh, didn't quite make it in time, and so got his ear whacked. 
the Lord did repair the ear and stopped any more violence. Luke 22, 51 tells us he's, you know, he put a stop to it. So the, it wasn't that the authorities put a stop to it. It was that the one being arrested put a stop to it. That's remarkable as well. Note Peter's mindset. Think about it for a moment. He's been told somebody's a betrayer. He's going to deny the Lord. Now the betrayal's happening. He's pulled out his sword. He's tried to kill somebody. I mean, his, he's off-center in his mind. You know what I'm saying? He's upset. He's angry about what's going on and troubled by all of this. And paradoxically, this sets him up to deny the Lord. I say paradoxically because here he's trying to defend the Lord and show his zeal in support of him, but becoming emotionally disturbed about the situation, he's being told to stand down and seeing Jesus bound and taken away must all have had a powerful effect on him and set him up uh, in part for failure. It interacted, those external circumstances interacted with his internal being and helped him to come to that angry and uh, rejecting response that was, uh, we'll see in a few verses later on, not in this message. Now Jesus says to him, because he did this, uh, this is in verse number uh, 52, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So we, that comes down to us in a common proverb in, in the English language that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. This is the origin of that, of that phrase. I'm sure that may have you know, been found elsewhere in various forms, but this is really the origin of that from the King James Version into English, and we've carried it down to these, to these days. The idea is that if you resort to violence to solve problems, then you should expect that that method of violence is going to return on your own head. Or in other words, that violence will recoil to you like a boomerang comes back. Um, Or if you, more metaphorically, if you live in vice, you will get the natural consequences of that vice, right? Live by the sword like, you know, you smoke all the time. How might you die? By the cigarette too, right? Because of the lung cancer. Um, <clears throat> so if you live in that vice, people, re, people talk about that today in a very Eastern, uh, mystical kind of context when they talk about karma. You know how karma comes back to bite you? Well, that's like... That's like fate, which is wrong. There is no such thing as fate. This is talking about the idea that you reap what you sow. It's talking about the idea of true justice, that that God has built some justice into the world, and ultimately there will be full and complete justice. But that's why it happens. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to expect that doing bad would result in something bad happening to you. But as the Proverbs say... If you dig a pit, you may well fall into that pit. Set a snare, you may in fact be snared by your own snare, which in a way that you didn't think of too cleverly. Now, Jesus says, don't you know that I could call a bunch of angels from my Father and He would provide me with them for, you know, obviously for protection and to deliver Him. He says 12 legions of angels. 
Any idea how many soldiers in a Roman legion? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a Bible note there, I know. I wouldn't have known that right off. I've forgotten that. 6,000. So 12 legions of angels, 72,000 of them. Indeed, he could do so, but he would not do so. So somebody brought up this as a question to me some time back, uh, hypothetically. The entire counterfactual statement, if Christ asked, God would send angels. That's true if he asked, but it's not going to happen because he's not going to ask. Why is he not going to ask? Christ was not going to ask because the whole situation is surrounded by this virtual truth. If it were the will of God to skip the cross, then I could ask the angels to come. But it was not God's will to skip the cross, and Christ already dealt with that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, not as I will, but as you will, and your will be done. So with that underlying context, we know that his statement about being able to call angels is no attack on his impeccability. Somebody, you know, kind of in, in, how can I say, invalidly transferred these ideas into one another. One idea, he could call angels. Second idea, he could sin. Well, those aren't equal. Just because he could make stones into bread, he could. Doesn't mean that he would. Doesn't mean that he actually could in terms of his uh, wanting to sin or show a lack of dependence on God the Father. So uh, he could not sin, and because of that, things that he is able to do, he refuses to do when they're wrong to do. Being able to do certain things and desiring to do them are two totally different things. In this case, he squarely wanted to do the Father's will, and that was that. In the garden, he dealt with this issue once and for all. Not my will, but thine be done. Now he is resolutely facing the will of God, and he's going to do it. And you see that. I mean, he's sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's greatly troubled. But now that prayer time is over. The time has come, and he's standing up there strong, saying, I have decided I'm doing the will of God. I'm not moving off of that because the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. Now, someday, Christ will call legions of angels to do his bidding. I thought I had written down a verse here from uh, 2 Kings. I think it's in chapter 6 or 7. Remember when the prophet asked God to open the eyes of his servant and he saw around all of the, all of the angelic hosts that were protecting them? Well, those were the legions of angels, we believe, protecting them from the army of the enemy. But someday, as I was saying, Christ will order legions of angels to do things like in Matthew 13, 41. Let's just go back there and just highlight this. Angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister. They serve God. And Matthew 13, 41, the Bible says, the Son of Man will send out His angels. That's Jesus is going to send out His angels. And they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their Father. In verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace. 
and uh, 24 in Matthew chapter thir- uh, sorry, chapter 24, verse 31, the Lord says this, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 25, 31. Listen to this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. So here you have the examples showing that Christ will command legions of angels to do things for him, primarily sorting out the elect from the non-elect, the saved from the not saved, the wheat from the tares, and place them in their final destination. But that's not what his program is right now. In this chapter, in 26, he's in the suffering time of his ministry, not in the glory of his ministry. Verse 54 in Matthew 26 says, How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? If Christ called the angels, then the Scriptures breathed out by God, superintended by the Holy Spirit, written by the prophets, those writings would not be fulfilled. Things had to turn out the way that they were written. So Christ could not kind of uh, put a stop to what was happening in these hours of being betrayed and handed over. Now Jesus then turned to the crowd in verse 55, and he said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? You know, he's saying, am I some kind of bandit? Am I some kind of terrorist, some kind of armed and dangerous you know, murderer, I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled there. That statement is again, and then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Think about the contrast. The Lord Jesus is saying, I was out here in public all this past week. I was teaching. You know, nobody was bothering us. We didn't do anything wrong. He didn't say all that, but I'm just, you know, kind of giving the summary of what's going on. And here you are coming in the cover of the night, middle of the night, with this group of people to arrest me. You know, it's like the FBI coming with a no-knock warrant in the middle of the night, unjustly to the wrong person, the person who's not a sinner, not a criminal rather, and, and arresting them. And that's what the Lord is saying. I mean, what are you doing out here in the middle of the night doing this? This is, this is terrible. They did not, you know, in the end, use force against Jesus or the disciples. He was a teacher. He wasn't, you know, uh, a boxer or a, you know, a mixed martial arts expert or something like that. He was a teacher. I mean, this is like, you know, go to arrest some, some math teacher, you know, some frizzy-haired math teacher that doesn't, is not violent at all. And you're going to go send 20 guys with machine guns to his house to pick him up. I mean, it's just out of proportion. But they were, they were, they were cowards. They didn't want to seize him in public. Why? Because they feared the crowds. In fact, I cite in my notes three verses in which they said, look, let's not do it during the feast lest we upset the crowds. Or they feared 
man, or they wouldn't answer Jesus' question about John the Baptist. Remember that? Where did he get his authority from? They're like, hmm, we say this or we say this. Well, they're not going to say that he wasn't a prophet because the people thought he was, and the Bible says they feared the crowds. They were man-pleasers, not God-pleasers. They feared man. They were cowards. But what the crowd was doing was, in fact, the multitude here was doing was actually fulfilling the Bible. Now then, later on, when they sat around thinking about this, I wonder if some of them realized, you know what we just did? We fulfilled the Scriptures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's another hypothetical or counterfactual statement, but they would have realized, what are we doing? This is insanity. Hopefully some of them got convicted by that sin and they realized with regret what they had done to the Son of God. And I mean with true repentance, I hope. Some of them did have mere regret. Yeah, Judas, remember, couldn't take it. The weight of burden upon him and the guilt, he, he didn't have any place to take it. I mean, he'd rejected, listen, he'd rejected the only place he could take that guilt. He wouldn't call Jesus Lord. He wouldn't ask him for forgiveness. He wouldn't say that I'm sorry for what I did. So when you're in that kind of situation, you have nowhere to turn with your guilt. What are you going to do? You're going to be in misery if you have a conscience. You see what I'm saying? But when you have Jesus and you can say to him, look, Lord, I, I blew it. I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? I confess my sin. You have a place to go where your sin can be cared for. It can be cleansed. It can be removed. It can be expiated. But if you reject the only way of salvation that there is, you're not going to find another place to put your sin. It's just not, there's no other place to put it. So what people do is they try to ignore it and just, you know, blow it off. It's not ultimately going to work. But people try to do that. So thus is the story of our Lord's arrest. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, this has been informational, educational, edifying to your people. And now I pray that you'd help us to ponder these words and think about ourselves and uh, how we might deal with, uh, how we do deal with sin in our lives, certainly not by the way Judas did. but by going to Jesus and asking to be cleansed, having a place to take our sins. Thank you that he died for us, Lord. Thank you, too, that we can look in the Scriptures and see answers to questions like, uh, will there be time in heaven? And we concluded, indeed, there would be. And thank you that after we're there for 10,000 years, those 12 cycles of months, 10,000 times, we'll be able to... serve you uh, no less days left than when we first began. Uh, We're grateful for that. We pray again tonight for Susan. ask that you would help the doctors to come to some uh, good conclusions, good data analysis about her case, and uh, help get her uh, on the straight and narrow path in health again. Thank you for tonight, for today, for your blessing, for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.